This month on Security Management Highlights. If someone's on the fringe in terms of their beliefs or their mental health, there's a lot of messages in this community, this echo chamber, that says that violence is justified and violence may even be necessary to stick up for uh, ourselves as members of this, this community. Involuntary celibates, or incels for short, are an online lone wolf subculture preaching male supremacy and violence. Stephen Cremando of Behavioral Science Applications is going to speak to us about making accurate behavioral assumptions about people on the pathway to violence. Plus, I have a global network in large parts because of ASS and that's hugely beneficial to, to my day job. When it comes to the CPP, it's something that professionals see on my CV and they see on my LinkedIn profile and it's almost like a, a, a nod, it's a silent, it's a, it's a mark of appreciation that the people will, will see it and they know that with a CPP I'm somebody who's put my time in. This month's certification profile is James Morris CPP. Now living in London, James is a founding member of the ASIS Ghana chapter and director of the ASIS Young Professionals Group in the United Kingdom. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold, and that's all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Chuck, thanks so much for having me. Now, this is a fascinating subject to me. Who are involuntary celibates or incels? And, and define that for our listeners, please. Well, the term incel is is relatively new in our popular culture. A number of high-profile active shooter and vehicle attacks have arisen out of that ideology in the last few years. But the concept of involuntary celibacy of individuals who uh, willingly decide, based on their, their life experience, that they're having such a difficult time either dating or romantically or getting involved physically and, and sexually with others that they decide to kind of leave that environment, but they leave angry. And over time, they've kind of coalesced primarily into an online community. So the phenomena is not particularly new. Some of the earliest of this we've seen goes back to a very famous case in Prague in 1973 of a woman who uh, left a very elaborate note after a vehicle attack, or I guess she had written it before, explaining her mindset of being ostracized, left behind, uh, rejected by society, rejected by, uh, by suitors. And this was her way of striking back. But probably the most famous of these cases, and really which starts the modern era of incels, is the Elliot Roger case in uh, Santa Barbara University, California, uh, Isla Vista in, in 2004, another individual who felt so rejected um, that he felt justified and re- wrote an elaborate manuscript or manifesto explaining his justification that has really become, in some ways, rocket fuel for the, the incel community of today. So how long have these folks been around? I'm, I'm sure throughout history. When did we first see them appearing kind of in uh, public? Well, the Elliot Roger case in 2004 really is the, the landmark case. We've got um, the first writings almost academically going back to uh, the late 90s and the early 2000s, really as the internet becomes a more popular place. And probably one of the first incels of note was a female, a Canadian female student who had written about this. And her ideas really kind of took hold and stored to run away. Incels in the media, you know, really being referred to as a, uh, a certain sort of ideology or a certain sort of mindset that is associated with violence, as I said, really kind of go back mostly to about 2004 in that Elliot Roger case in, in University of um, 
California Santa Barbara campus. And he was so clear in articulating this mindset that in some ways that manifesto he had written has become a, a handbook or in some senses even a Bible for those who have followed. Uh, we had a very significant case in April uh, 2018 in Toronto of an individual following pretty much the writings of Elliot Rogers in this mindset who launched a very significant vehicle attack, uh, killing a number of people there. So the concept has been around a good long time. There's probably always been people in history who subscribe to this, this idea, but the internet has given them a place to kind of coalesce because otherwise these are, these are mostly very lonely people who are not in the social stream, who otherwise would have difficult times connecting, but the internet gives them a, a venue to meet and become a, an online community. These folks sound like they self-identify, and that sounds a lot like terrorists to me, right? Because terrorists want to say, hey, I'm a terrorist. I belong to this group. Is that what's going on here, or are these two different things? They are both in some ways a unique thing that this tends to arise out of a personal grievance. But just like many other forms of terrorism in which an individual kind of starts to move onto that pathway of radicalization and perhaps further down the pathway towards mobilization, that personal grievance tends to find a like-minded ideology where this one person who harbors this, this belief system or this anger uh, and animus finds that they're not alone. And, and in this context, finds online usually that they're not alone or finds via a media report of another incel-related attack that they're not alone, and joins these communities where there's this very pervasive ideology. So as the ideology um, really kind of takes hold and the person starts to become radicalized in this mindset, it starts to look a lot more like terrorism. And there are some people who have referred to this as sexual terrorism uh, or even gender-based terrorism, because primarily this is an online um, male community. This is a violent misogyny. And in that way, the dynamics are very much like terrorism. And as I, you know, as I think about this in a case like the case in Toronto, the government there was hesitant to, to call it a terrorist act. But terrorism is violence motivated by an ideology. And in this way, there's a lot that, that really crosses over and starts to look like terrorism. But there's one other interesting nexus a number of people who exist in this online community also subscribe to other extremist sort of ideologies. It's not an exclusive mindset. So we find people in these incel communities who also subscribe to white supremacist, mostly sort of ideologies. And just over the last months out of uh, Europe, a number of websites that are calling uh, for violence against women in the context of being really a, a form of sexual terrorism and labeling it as such, labeling it as terrorism. So increasingly, it starts to look like terrorism. Is the psychiatric community defining these people as mentally ill, or are they just people that are really, really hurt and acting out? And the reason I say this is because when we look at active shooter scenarios, one of the common denominators, as you know, is isolation and emotional distancing, right? These people disassociate from their group. They're not connected with them, which allows them to kind of kill without an emotional attachment. Is there a similarity here or is this a different thing? There's probably some overlap, but not a perfect one-to-one -one overlap. If we take, for example, the relationship between mental illness and terrorists, we know as a starting place, and this is the proper and actually, actually the accurate starting place, 
which is to realize that the research repeatedly tells us that individuals with mental illnesses are no more likely to be violent than the average person, except under certain circumstances like noncompliance with treatment and medication and adding substance abuse into the mix, things of that nature. But when we start to dig into the realm of terrorism, there's some things that are actually even more interesting. For example, individuals who are lone actor terrorists, and that by the definition is what the the incel is. It's someone who is not part of a, you know, necessarily a cell or a group. They're someone with a personal grievance. Lone actor terrorism or lone actor terrorists are actually 13 and a half times more likely to be uh, someone with a mental illness than individuals who are involved in group-based terrorism. So when we start looking at these individuals, there are things about them and their mental health in some instances that may make them more isolated. But a very important distinction is why they're isolated. And very often when we think about active shooter, you know, we have heard in the media and we've seen in studies over and over this idea of the person being a loner. And in this context, that's not particularly accurate. Uh, yes, they are alone, but it's it's by you know design. They've kind of withdrawn or felt rejected and pushed away from society. So the question here is, not the loner, but one of an incompetent joiner. And the incompetent joiner, if we think about this perhaps as a kid at school age, high school, middle school age, who wants to be one of the cool kids, wants to sit at the cool kid lunch table, be part of the team, go to the dance, get the date, all of those kind of things. Uh, but he's a little bit socially awkward. He gets pushed away, feels rejected, feels hurt and damaged in some way. And increasingly, you know, this small subset of people who feel that because they're so hurt, they're justified in retaliating. They're justified in some sort of retribution. Uh, Elliot Roger was a very good case study in this. The title of his manifesto and, and much of his language is really about his day of retribution. And we see this, that it's not just someone who's a loner by their temperament. And lots of people, certainly not with any form of mental illness, are more solitary people or more comfortable uh, being alone than being in groups. That's That's you know, not necessarily a problem. So the question is not, are you a loner, but why you're a loner. If you're someone who's this incompetent joiner, there may be elements of mental illness there that have kind of pushed you to the fringes. But as I said uh, earlier, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. There are some people in the terrorist community with mental illnesses. There are some people, perhaps even many in the incel community, who may also have some form of diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness. So I got a couple minutes left. Here's my last question. Chicken or the egg? Is a sense of isolation created by people that are constantly online and don't interact with others in the physical world, or do people that are already isolated seek out the internet as a place of refuge and reinforcement of their beliefs? So as much as I hate to give you a, a wishy-washy answer, Chuck, it's probably some degree of both. We increasingly know that people who spend an awful lot of time um, in social media and online communities and so forth uh, do not necessarily feel better about life. In fact, there's some correlation with, with depression and so forth. So there may be that kind of contributing factor. On the other hand, there are many people who otherwise would not have any social contact uh, other than being linked up in online communities. The problem here for us is one that when someone enters an, an, an angry online community, and these are primarily, as I said, male-dominated misogynistic sorts of, of group environments that are online, they become echo chambers. And the danger really is, you know, something that I've explained a few times in, in other discussions 
this has the potential of becoming a pack of lone wolves. Now, I know that concept of lone wolf or that, that expression has fallen a little bit out of favor with our law enforcement and our intelligence communities. But if we think about that, this is that lone individual uh, the, and, and they are angry about that. They've kind of withdrawn from the game and they're, they're certainly hostile about that. But now they're able to form up into a larger community of angry individuals and the talk in these environments and the encouragement in these environments for violence really does have the potential to fuel that. So there's aspects in which maybe this person becomes who's, who's existing only in an online environment, a little more disconnected from society. But from the incel standpoint, they're probably someone who already has made some sort of decision or has some sense of rejection and is seeking to commiserate online uh, to find company online from other people who had shared experiences and have a shared mindset. So to the chicken and egg question, there's probably elements and probably evidence of both to some degree. Steve Cremando of Behavioral Science Applications, brilliant and succinct way to explain this uh, complex complex problem facing our society. Steve, thanks so much for uh, coming on Security Management Highlights. Chuck, thanks so much for having me. Welcome to Security Management Highlights. James, how are you? Uh, I'm good today, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. I've looked into your background a little bit, and and I'm going to have to say, you're kind of like the Indiana Jones of the CPP professional world. I've never been called the Indiana Jones of CPP before, but I like that. (laughs) 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 You have a really extensive background in traveling and all these places you've gone and stuff. Give us a little bit of your background. So people can kind of know really the scope of, of what you've experienced in the world. Sure. Um, so my current role is that I'm the regional security manager for Europe, Middle East and Africa for Aon. We are uh, Aon are the insurance broker and, and risk management company. Uh, I'm based based in London. I'm from the UK originally. So prior to joining Aon just over two years ago, I spent around 18 months working for AIG, uh, also in London. Uh, and also in a regional role for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. But before that, I basically spent the best part of 12, 13 years working uh, working overseas. Um, I started my security management career working in Iraq. Um, I was um, I was a reserve soldier um, with the UK Army. I was uh, an intelligence corps soldier. Uh, and I mobilized to Iraq in early 2004. Um, I spent almost nine months serving um, as, as a soldier in, in Iraq um, and was coming towards the end of my time, and I was actually approached by one of the the large security companies who were who were setting up over in Iraq. Um, they asked if I was interested in coming back to uh, coming back to Iraq as a as a civilian rather than a soldier, and decided to stay in Iraq. And ended up spending another two years in Iraq uh, before switching to Afghanistan uh, and spending. Uh, almost three years in in Afghanistan. The majority of my time I spent in Kabul at the British Embassy, uh, but also spent some time down in Helmand in in Lashkar uh, as well. I spent almost six years in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I came to um, the end of my time in Afghanistan and decided that I was quite keen to to get out of the conflict zones. That I was still interested in working overseas. I still enjoyed security, um, but I wanted to go somewhere that was felt a little bit uh, more normal um, and I but I eventually ended up in Ghana in West Africa I was very fortunate that my CV ended up on a desk of a um, of a security manager who was trying to find to fill a role uh, in a gold mining company so I ended up moving to Ghana working for Newmont mining 
the uh, the U.S. mining gold mining company, and I spent three and a half years in Ghana. Um, after Ghana, I then moved to Senegal, also in West Africa, to work for a Canadian uh, gold mining company, uh, where I spent the best part of, of two and a half years. So, yeah, some some quite a bit of moving around. Uh, some interesting places for, for how did you come to how did you come <laughs> to find you. ASIS? So it was actually when I was in Afghanistan. Um, I I guess like a lot of people do, I, I I fell into the security industry. It wasn't necessarily something I thought that I would do, but working in the industry without necessarily knowing a huge amount about amount about the industry. Uh, and a good friend of mine in the UK suggested ASIS to me as, as something that I should look into. Whilst I was still in Afghanistan, joined ASIS and then joined the UK chapter, because clearly we didn't have a chapter in, in Kabul that I could go to, but I joined the UK chapter. And it's just gone from there, really. I, I, I just found a huge value at a very early stage in my career. It was able to help me better understand what the industry was about. James, let's talk about how you founded the Ghana chapter of ASIS. That's a pretty significant accomplishment. Uh, yeah, a really interesting um, thing that happened actually. So when I when I first moved to Ghana, uh, my boss at the time, Otto Sloan CPP, uh, was a was a big supporter of ASIS, putting a lot of the security department uh, in in Ghana uh, through ASIS through ASIS and, and 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 signing them up as members. But ultimately, we also wanted wanted to do more than just sign them up as as members. Uh, and we had a number of other international companies. In, in the mining sector, uh, but also oil and gas industry was was kind of starting in Ghana at the time, and we had a number of international companies in in Ghana, and we decided that that actually the idea of setting up a Ghana chapter might be a really great way to increase the understanding of security in Ghana. That it might be a, a really great way to 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 help build the the, the, the skill set of the of the security departments. So I was given the uh, the job of of making it happen, which um, I was fortunate to have some really great people at, at ASAS headquarters help me with. And we had a regional vice president based out of Nigeria at the time who was who was completely supportive. Um, but you know we were the only chapter outside of Nigeria, and I think South Africa in the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. So you know we ended up actually finding that we became a support chapter for other parts of West Africa as well. So really pleased. It's one of one of the, the things I think I'm probably proudest of uh, during my time as a ASAS member. That's a fantastic accomplishment. Now that happened back in 2011. Let's fast forward to 2016. You started looking into CPP certification and, and you went through with that in 2016. Tell us about that process. What what motivated you to, uh, to take that plunge? It was something that I had been considering for a number of years. Um, I had initially looked at the PSP uh, and thought that maybe that would be the, the the route that I wanted to to go down. And and actually talking to some some uh, some really great professionals and, and talking to people who had done the PSP CPP, some who had done both, decided that actually the CPP was where I wanted to invest my time. Yeah, it was something that I had wanted to do, and I think I probably put off for a couple of years, thinking that I was possibly too busy to do it, and and eventually. Just came to the realization that at a point you just have to do it. I found a a four day intensive course that we could do in in the UK, which I found hugely beneficial um, to really help me focus my my study and and, and my learning and 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 just went along and uh, you know shortly after leaving finishing the course and sat my exam and and was very very happy to see that I that I passed. Um, so for me it was it was it was a long journey, but ultimately then a, a very quick decision to knuckle down and, and get it done. Tell our listeners what you get out of both the combination of ASIS membership 
and of course the added benefit of CPP. How does that distinguish you in the field? So I, since I've been an ASAS member, I'm, I'm a very vocal supporter of ASAS because I think ultimately it's 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 something that you get a huge amount of value out of if you're prepared to put something into it. And, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes what happens is that people sign up and, and think that that's that's it. That's the solution to all of their challenges. And, and I and I think like a lot of professional bodies, you, you get out what you're willing to put in. And I've found that in spades with, with ASAS, that the more time I've been involved, the more I'm willing to put in, the more I get out of it. My my network through ASAS has grown exponentially in the last few years. And, and I think that that fact alone makes me more than happy to, to pay the, the membership fee each year. I, I have a global network in large parts because of ASAS, and that's hugely beneficial to, to my day job. Um, I support Aon uh, employees and also Aon clients around the world, and, 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 and I lean very heavily on my ASAS network to, to, to help that. So I, I'm a huge supporter of ASAS, and I, and I always will be because I think you get a huge amount of value out of it. When it comes to the CPP, it's something that professionals see on my CV and they see on my LinkedIn profile, and it's almost like a a, a nod. It's a silent. It's a it's a mark of appreciation that the people will will see it and they know that with a CPP, I'm somebody who's put my time in, um, and I and I have the knowledge and I have the experience to to sit and pass that exam. And you know, I, I think it's I can look at a profile and see if that somebody has an ASS qualification, and and I. I know that that means they are a professional of, of, a, of a certain standard. Um, and it's, you know, without even meeting them, they almost go up a level when I see that. And, and you know, I, I think that I, I think it's something that you you can demonstrate, you can use to demonstrate that you have a level of experience and knowledge in this industry. Uh, and I'm a, again, I'm a huge supporter of of, of the CPP. Uh, I think it's um, I think it's highly valuable for for professionals to to have if they're able to to study and pass the exam. What do you think about the current state of technology in the security industry? Do we have too much of it? I've seen it on so many occasions where there's this over reliance on on the gadgets, and when they fall down, you know, it's like it's like taking a, a GPS out into the backcountry and then. You know, not knowing where you're going when that stops working. You know, if you don't know how to read a map, then or you don't know how to move around, then you know you, you, you're kind of stuck. And I ultimately think that that's you know that's the way I I think about security. At GSX last year, I had the pleasure of speaking with some of the young professionals groups, and I got to tell you, I was very very impressed. And naturally, being the Indiana Jones <laughs> of CPP, you just happened to also work with uh, the young professionals in the UK chapter. Tell us about that and how you contribute to their success. Around 15 months ago, I was asked to step up as the director of young professionals for the UK chapter. And I've been doing that ever since. Just a fantastic honor. It's a fantastic opportunity to interact with with the future of this industry. And it's a, a real honor to, to meet and interact with the professionals that, that, that we do have here. And we, we run at least four events a year. We do other events. We do social events. We are going to be launching a podcast in the next few months. Uh, we have newsletters, but but we do a lot with young professionals. And, and a lot of that is driven by the fact that I have the chapter leadership support that allows me to do that. But it's uh, it's something I'm hugely, hugely supportive of and hugely passionate about. And, and, and you know I, I hope more and more experienced professionals to give their time to support the young professionals. Are you finding the transition between the old and the young is working both ways? The old gray hair guys like me are mentoring people down, but the young people are also mentoring up. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I, I, think, I think mentoring goes both ways. 
we are in the process of launching a mentoring program for the UK uh, Young Professional Group. And I'm trying to, the way I'm trying to explain it to people is that it, you, you might have a view that a mentor is somebody more experienced and a mentee is, is a young professional. But actually, if, if you're doing it properly, you learn both ways. And, and one, of the, one of the things I enjoy most about my interaction with a young professional is, is I walk out of a young professional event and I, I know that I have to be on my toes, that I have to study, that I have to stay at the top of my game, that I have to invest the time in, in learning and, and studying because there is a passionate, knowledgeable group of professionals who are snapping at my heels behind me. So I... I feel like I get as much from the young professionals as, as I hope they're able to get from me. And, and I think that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. We talk about that we have to get more younger professionals involved. But I don't think we should ever forget that there's there will always be a place for the experienced professional. You know, our industry, we should be able to hold the mirror up to our industry and our reflection. We look like industry. We look like the clients that we're supporting. We look like the world in general. And I think if we are able to be, if we're able to balance young professionals with experience, if we're able to balance different races, different religions, different cultures, different lifestyles, then ultimately we are going to be best served and in the best place to be able to support our clients. Because, because I think we can learn as much from a young professional as we can from an experienced professional. And, and, and I think that that's, that, that's, that's the, the the value of mentoring for me is that is that if you're doing it well, you are learning in both directions. That is a very powerful way to end the show. James Morris, CPP, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, that does it for this month's episode of Security Management Highlights. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And once again, I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Until next time, be safe. <laughs>